0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our last Medical University of South Carolina Science Never Sleeps podcast for 2020. It has been quite a year, and we thought our December podcast would begin with a soothing and beautiful musical piece in the spirit of the holiday season. You are listening to Sing We Now of Christmas, an original composition by Susan Conant, performed by the Robert Taylor Festival Choir here in Charleston with a CD of the same name recorded and released by Robert Laporta's MSR Classics label. But it is not just by chance that we offer this lovely vocal rendition. It is a segue to a very fitting and timely podcast with our guest, Dr. Lucinda A. Halstead, Vice Chairman for Resident Education in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, and the medical director of the MUSC Evelyn Trammell Institute for Voice and Swallowing. Dr. Halstead founded the MUSC Voice Center in 1987 to support research and advanced care in laryngology, swallowing, voice, pediatric otolaryngology, and performing arts medicine. In 2000, she became the medical director of the MUSC Evelyn Trammell Institute for Voice and Swallowing. She is the laryngologist for the internationally renowned Spoleto Festival USA and president of the Performing Arts Medicine Association. Welcome, Dr. Halstead.
1: Thank you, Loretta. It is an honor to be here.
0: I mentioned that this is a timely podcast, not only because it is a season of holiday cheer and singing only sweetens the joy, but because the research with which you have been engaged has much to say about how COVID is spread. It was and is a massive undertaking. Would you share a little bit about this study and how it came about?
1: Absolutely. First, I should like to clarify that my role in the aerosol study has been primarily that of disseminating information to performers via webinars sponsored by Performing Arts Medicine Association, the National Association of Teachers of Singing, and the British Association for Performing Arts Medicine. Additionally, I have communicated this information by phone and email to my patients who are performers and my performing colleagues at educational institutions that range from elementary schools to university programs. Also, to my delight, I have been fortunate to exchange ideas with some of the study co-chairs and principal investigators during this study. The exchange of ideas I hope has benefited all of us.
0: Dr. Halstead, um, I'm going to stop you for a moment and ask you, so this is an international group of of uh, scientists looking at, at, at uh, this particular study, is that correct?
1: Yes, it is. It is the most amazing piece of research in a long time. The study is actually entitled the unprecedented international coalition led by performing arts organizations to commission the COVID-19 study. Before I go into the details of how, who is conducting this study, I would like to give you just a little bit of background as to why the study was important. As the pandemic started, it became apparent that the virus might be transmitted by aerosolized viral particles as evidenced by multiple superspreader spreader events worldwide involving choirs. The first one that we had in the United States was in Washington state where no masks were worn. Among 61 persons who attended that March 10th choir practice, one person was known to be symptomatic of some sort of viral illness, which later was identified as COVID. Subsequently, they had 53 choir members identified including 33 confirmed and 20 probable cases of COVID-19. Three of the people who became ill were hospitalized and two of them died.
0: That's horrible.
1: Yeah, it was very, very tragic. This two and a half hour singing practice, when they studied it, provided several opportunities for droplet transmission and fomite transmission, meaning between uh, inanimate objects, such as books, chairs, music. Um, These included members sitting close together and sharing snacks, stacking chairs together, but most importantly they were not wearing masks during the rehearsal. Thus it was postulated that the act uh, might have contributed to the uh, emission of aerosols and the infection of the choir members. Other outbreaks had already occurred worldwide including choral rehearsals in South Korea and in retrospect one in London in December of 2019 where one of the choir members had recently visited China and came back and then attended a choir rehearsal. So looking back in the scientific community as to what evidence there was that viral transmission um, could occur through aerosolized particles, to our shock there really was only one article that was Um, published in 1998, pertaining to the spread of tuberculosis in a church choir, where loud singing, of course, was being performed, but that the transmission of tuberculosis occurred in a population that historically is not at risk to contract tuberculosis.
0: That's really interesting. So there was not, of course, no one knew at the time in, in late December and then early uh, in 2020 uh, what exactly we were dealing with and uh, no clue that singing um, would be a, a transmission for the virus it's interesting, I guess they were doing a, a literature study or something, and that's how they found out about the TB, or how did that come about that they they, they looked at that and said, oh, there might be a connection here?
1: So that was a, 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 a case report of um, this outbreak of tuberculosis in a choir, um, and that was the first time that aerosols actually had been mentioned in association with singing, and again... Uh, There have been other studies uh, later on that associated the possibility of loud talking but Mm. not singing um, as uh, increasing aerosol generation from a person. Okay. So um, the reason that it became paramount at this time, of course, is that if we think about viral transmission by singing and through the bells of wind and brass instruments, it becomes a tremendous public health issue. It affects religious gatherings, theater and performance venues, but most importantly, it affects the musical education of our children who are our future artists. So that leads us to the development of the unprecedented international coalition led by performing arts organizations to commission COVID-19 studies. This was just a phenomenal event. It was organized by the College Band Director National Association and the National Federation of High School Bands, which are headed by doctors Mark Speed and James Weaver, and they commissioned aerosol experts to develop a study to look at instruments, specifically the wind and brass instruments, singing, acting, and dancing and most importantly, what kinds of mitigations you could put in place to prevent these aerosols from infecting other people and other performers. The study was really a giant GoFundMe in that they reached out. They did not go through a federal grant uh, uh, request. They said, we, this needs to happen now. And they reached out to art organizations and had over 100 organizations contribute. The first $125,000 was raised within three weeks, and the total of $325,000 was raised within about eight weeks.
0: I think that's phenomenal, and that really does speak to the desire of the performing arts community to uh, want to continue to do the important work they do, especially as you noted for children, um, and that they took the initiative. They didn't wait around. They said, let's figure this out now so we can continue the great work that we do. So I applaud them for that. That really is wonderful.
1: It was just so, so amazing, the outreach and uh, uh, enthusiasm of the performing arts community. And I think most importantly, that reflects the passion and the personal desire of these artists to perform. I will tell you that time and again, my patients say when they can't perform, you know, that they feel like they've, that their soul is dead, Mm. that they have, that their sense of self is completely destroyed. They have no identity So for performers, singers, instrumentalists, without this artistic expression, they feel that they've really lost a good portion of their identity. So they were very lucky because they were able to reach out to two aerosol experts, Dr. Shelley Miller at the University of Colorado Boulder and Dr. Jelena Sebrick at the University of Maryland. And these two ladies should be commended because they were able to bring their labs out of lockdown, complete an IRB approval, and design parallel studies to verify the findings of each of their laboratories within about four weeks.
0: That is incredible. For those who don't understand how the research process works, and indeed, because of the COVID-19 lockdown of of, uh, research laboratories, that that is tremendous speed on their part to do everything correctly, to be able to get up and running and make sure they have approved research study. So um, again, it just speaks to the passion of of everyone engaged in this project. What were the findings that came out of the study or at least the findings to date?
1: So the finding to date is that aerosol emissions do occur Uh, and are increased by loud singing and through the bells of most wind and brass instruments. So, they then looked at what kind of mitigations could be effective in decreasing that aerosol spread. The biggest one is wearing masks. So the mask will block most of the forward aerosol transmission, and what is not contained by the mask leaks mostly upward around the nose toward the ceiling and a little bit out the side versus forward towards your colleagues. Um, We have found that the woven surgical masks, the regular ones that we see most people wearing these days and especially our performers, will block about 64 percent of the aerosol. So, What they found is with wearing the mask and then distancing circumferentially the singers and the instrumentalists six feet apart, it was very, very effective in decreasing transmission. Can I stop
0: you one one moment there? What I was just thinking as you were uh, explaining how they were beginning that mitigation process is um, and perhaps you will speak to this more later, is when they're required to do this for safety health reasons, does it have an effect on the musical output?
1: Yeah, I can talk about that. These mitigations um, are actually, um, that's part of the study is to figure out what you can put in place that has the maximum amount of removal of or blocking of aerosols but does not degrade the sound of perfect the uh, instrument perfect so the three layer surgical masks uh, are great because they closely cover the nose and chin and they are recommended for singers however for singers this is a real challenge because when they breathe in the mask is sucked up against their mouth and makes it very very difficult plus having the the force of your breath coming back at you while you're singing uh, can be very challenging. So multiple mask designs are being studied by the coalition to see which ones might be the best. And I can already tell you that uh, the singers have been extraordinarily inventive um, (laughs) looking, but with all of these ideas of safety in mind in terms of mask fit, three layers, or N95 material, even if it's not uh, completely fit, as we call fit-tested for surgery, um, to help mitigate uh, viral transmission uh, in church choirs um, and uh, in the educational setting. So um, that's what they're doing. They're, They're looking at such for sing- singers these different kinds of masks to try to find something that's ideal and the same is going on with instruments they have looked at different bell covers that make it still easy to play but block the aerosol transmission they have looked at how the instrumentalist can interface uh, with the instrument which is putting the uh, mouthpiece into their mouth without Having a lot of transmission. So, what they've designed and seems to be extremely effective, as we can talk about in a minute, is that the instrumentalists will wear two surgical masks. The one closest to them will have a horizontal slit so they can get their instrument into their mouth. And while they're playing, that is the only mask that they're using. However, hooked on their ear and when they're not playing is a an intact surgical mask. So when they're sitting there just breathing and waiting for their turn to play, they have this extra mask that is blocking aerosol flow. So the other things that they've looked at very, very carefully is environmental mitigation. And I will tell you that um, a lot of our college, uh, local college vocal programs are using these mitigations, uh, specifically limiting performance time um, or lesson time to 30 minutes and then changing space. So the reason that one wants to do that is that with the leak around the mask, there is going to be aerosol that's disseminating through the room. Their recommendation based on their knowledge of aerosol transmission um, or potential for infection is that after 30 minutes there should be the possibility of enough aerosol in the room that we need to have a time to clear it. So the 30 minutes is really based on the fact that most commercial buildings have a two to three um, uh, air exchange rate per hour. So that means that it's anywhere between 20 and 30 minutes. Know that your air exchange, for example, is um, three exchanges an hour, then the air in the room is exchanged every 20 minutes. So after 30 minutes, what they recommend is that everybody leave the room, you wait for 20 minutes, and then you can go back into that room. And hopefully what you've done is you have another room that you can go into and continue your um, your lessons or your rehearsal. But most of the colleges are doing uh, video voice lessons mm-hmm. or outdoor rehearsal. Um, and again, moving the venue. Even outdoors, they recommend that you move the venue after 30 minutes. However, one of the webinars that we did uh, sponsored by Performing Arts Medicine was bringing it indoors because now it's cold outside. And uh, the airflow again in the performance space is very important. Um, if you look at the um, website for the coalition, they talk a lot about the air exchange rates, HEPA filters and ultraviolet light. All of these things can also help decrease uh, uh, and kill the virus. Um, So these are some very important things. Additionally, again, uh, Dr. Sebrick has been very, very interested in trying to see if there's other kinds of mitigations they can use uh, to help protect and blow air away from singers so that they don't have to be masked. Um, And she shared with us uh, one of her, she said, this is my first approximation I just used what I had, and she has a singer sitting at a table with two box fans, one on each side, blowing the aerosol away. And she says, this is this is just what I had, and obviously, you can't hear the singer singing because of the noise of the box fans. But it's great that they are looking at these kinds of things to help our singers uh, be able to perform. Uh if we can find find things that they could do so that they could be in a in a theater type interactive performance would be fantastic.
0: Indeed. Necessity is the mother of invention, no?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. So um I think the thing that I found very, very exciting is that people go, well, you know, it's this really important. These mitigations actually do work. Uh, Dr. Speed shared with us uh, some of the things that he's been monitoring in band and orchestral practices. And there has been an incident where two of the clarinetists, and I will say that clarinets are one of the highest aerosol emitters Mm. of the wind instruments, um, were COVID positive during the uh, practice. One of them was completely asymptomatic and the other had been feeling a little crummy and went to the um, uh, student health center and was told that he didn't have COVID and they didn't test him. Mm. Later on that evening, he felt worse and went to the emergency room and was COVID tested and was positive. Mm. No student in that orchestra got the, uh, was infected by COVID.
0: Because, because of those of the, mitigation people, because processes, of the is that is fantastic.
1: They were wearing the masks, they were doing the bell covers, they were observing the time um, constraints, and no viral transmission occurred. So that is is huge, because that means that we can have limited but safe uh, rehearsals for our students and Uh, This will really help all of our young artists not lose their skills. So one of the things that was uh, brought up in the British Association of Performing Arts Medicine was a study where they showed that musicians, high-level musicians, after two weeks of not doing anything, like no singing or no instrumental practice, had a significant degradation in their skills. And it took them a long time to recover
0: wow that's incredible
1: so only two weeks and you can have for a high level performer a significant uh, degradation in their skills
0: one of the things you you noted is the the study designers were very centered on making sure that they found some solutions but as you noted earlier uh, not Talking about degradation, not uh, not degrading the actual sound of the performance, is that correct?
1: That's correct. And so they've they've tried multiple things they especially with the bell covers, um, there were some that had very heavy uh, material, and that was uh, not good for the sound. And what they noted was that they could have a lighter material bell cover. And it did the same thing hmm. um, they went um, even as far t- to having a very very thin uh, bell cover which was spe- essentially nylon pantyhose um, that they put over the bell and it was effective but because it stretched after a while it you could never uh, guarantee the in- um, effectiveness But now these bell covers that they're recommending are commercially available Mm. for for bands.
0: That's wonderful.
1: Uh, It's it's just so, so exciting. Uh, Again, for singers, uh, looking at the masks, looking at airflow in the performance space um, is really very critical. Um, And they are working on that, which is very exciting. Um, it's it's hard uh even for dancers to um to work with masks mm. and um actually uh one of my colleagues is the physician for the Rockettes mm. and they have them practicing with masks at home and then they're just starting to bring them back into uh uh the theater to do some rehearsals but there's lots of different mitigations that they use there in terms of uh, having them come with their street clothes over their leotards so that they don't have to go into a changing room and have that locker room experience that you usually have backstage. And they each have a little area to put their street clothes, and they just take it off, leave it there, do their dancing, go back, put it on, and leave the studio I
0: can imagine that that would be uh, would be a challenge, but they're probably grateful for the mask because all performers, it's an expressive uh, discipline. Even when you're dancing, your face is still part of that whole performance. So I would imagine that's that is rather challenging to them. And yet they still uh, I hope the Rockets are able to do something phenomenal during the holiday season.
1: So, well, I think they're looking very seriously at it. Um or if not now, uh, for next, uh, this this uh, summer. Um, but, you know, it is a problem. One of the things that we really have talked about is the fact that you can't see the lower third of the face with mm-hmm. the masks. There are some translucent masks, um, and those are also, all of those things are being looked at, but I don't have any of that data right at the moment. Okay. I think that all of us are really excited that there have been now vaccines that are approved uh, for use, at least in England and soon in the United States, the Pfizer and the Moderna and potentially the AstraZeneca vaccines. Um, This of course will be uh, phenomenal to give everyone protection so that we could eventually move to uh, a maskless performance. But people need to realize that that's going to take many months, if not over a year, to get enough people vaccinated so that it's safe to take the masks off.
0: It's true. Patience is in order, even as we find some wonderful solutions. Uh, to help us get through these hard times. This is such an important study, and the results are quite interesting, and I believe they are transferable to all sorts of other venues, including courtrooms, classrooms, on the athletic field. Um, uh, I'm really excited about what you all are doing, and even some of the commercialization of some of the devices uh, coming out now. Um, And I think that a lot of people will really want to know more in depth about this unprecedented Uh, research study. So we are going to share links to the video conversations with the lead researchers and a video on the viral transmission to our audience. That will be part of the package that we send out to um, our audience. Um, So everyone will have the opportunity to read more in depth about this and understand even more how um, those aerosols really do spread quite a bit Um, without a mask on. So um, thank you very much for that information, Dr. Halstead.
1: Just to um, corroborate what you've just said, and um, they have looked at, uh, because again, this study was really primarily geared to putting students back in the classroom and um, performing in the classroom, but they also said these are some things that teachers who are not performing or doing band or choir can also use. So the recommendations for a classroom, again, is a 30-minute contact uh, and then a change of venue. However, they recommend that the teacher be miked so that they can only speak or they can preferably speak in a conversational tone um, versus Projecting like many teachers have to as they project across the classroom. Uh, Additionally, when students ask a question, they were asked. uh, The recommendation is to, uh, again, ask your question in a very conversational tone um, without a lot of uh, increased volume.
0: That's good. Very good advice. Actually, very thoughtful. So switching lanes a bit. um, Tell us more about the Evelyn Trammell Institute, please.
1: The Evelyn Trammell Institute for Voice and Swallowing is actually, um, the goal of our institute is to deliver state-of-the-art care for patients with voice and swallowing problems, and we achieve this by participating in research to advance the knowledge in both the field of voice and the field of swallowing, Um, and not only do we participate in that research, we're very active in training medical and allied health professionals uh, in Techniques of voice and swallowing therapy, uh, so that they can help us with new ideas to advance scientific knowledge.
0: It's very interesting. The, uh, the Evelyn Tremell Institute for Voice and Swallowing, not only for for the performing arts, it's for everyday people. And I'm thinking about the elderly who, especially, um, are confronted with issues of swallowing. Is that true?
1: Yes. Um, they have both voice and swallowing issues. As we age, we lose muscle mass and um, muscle tone. So although it seems almost counterintuitive that since we talk and we chew and swallow all the time, that oh, as we age, that those muscles would fail us. But they, you actually do lose, lose strength in these muscles so that there are many uh, exercises for both the voice and also for swallowing to strengthen the muscles of the tongue and the pharynx, uh, the respiratory system, so that you can restore and build back uh, strength to swallow effectively or to speak loudly, um, and especially for elderly choir members to develop enough breath support to actually uh, sing more loudly without... Uh, abnormal compensations um, with accessory muscles of the neck so that they sing clear and loud like they did when they were 20 versus in a tight, um, sort of strained way uh, that often happens when you're compensating uh breath.
0: Oh, that's good news. I'm very happy to hear that. Tell us uh, some more about the common vocal issues you deal with as medical director of the Tramell Institute.
1: So um, One of the most common things that I see is overuse. Um, These performers perform all the time, so as they're singing loudly and their vocal folds are vibrating together, the edge of the vocal folds, that contacts can become a little stiff just from use. And that can sometimes lead to them doing abnormal compensatory uh, uh, maneuvers with excess tongue tension, uh, more tension in the neck, and from that develop nodules or polyps. Um, sometimes it also just exacerbates some technical issues they have uh, from incomplete uh, training in whatever particular uh, vocal style that they're doing at that particular moment. So um, those the, that's probably one of the most uh, common things, uh, is that and then the nodules and the polyps. But a lot of it is also, especially when uh, hearkening back to uh, the elderly, a lot of their problems can really be a disassociation of the breath to the vocal folds so that they don't have that power coming up to vibrate the vocal folds, what we call subglottic pressure, um, because they've, they've disengaged that mechanism. Mm. Um, they, they disengage it mostly because there's, again, the degradation of the, the muscle tone in, um, in the chest wall and the diaphragm. But the other thing that is a huge problem nowadays is the forward head posture that we Mm -hmm. all have when we, uh, because of our, um, screens, our phones, our iPads, our computers, Um, And studies have shown that just putting your head forward about three or four inches, um, which is kind of what you do when you look down at your cell phone, um, you, you decrease your lung volume by 30%. So what happens with that, if you're sitting there. That's why when, you know they want singers to be standing up straight and put their music out in front of them, because if they have their head down here, they lose 30 percent of their lung volume. Then they have to use excess pressure of the accessory muscles of the larynx and neck and in order to generate that pressure to get the vocal folds to vibrate um, and produce sound at the level that they, they want to produce it.
0: I bet folks have, no, I, I'm sure folks have not even thought about um, the effect of posture. So um, back to what our parents told us, sit up straight. Sit up straight.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, um, our biggest technical advances are actually in some ways some of our biggest enemies in mm. that mm. it really has um, limited the ability for people to breathe um, and to breathe normally, um, or breathe fully rather, um, and I see that a lot in my in my aging patients. Um, my residents can tell you I'm constantly sort of putting my hands on their rib cage and say, "Take a deep breath," and <laughs> they don't know how anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we sort of have to talk about that. It's it's um, very very interesting. It truly
0: is. It truly is. I I would suggest to you maybe a little yoga would help out with them um, with our everyday lives and breathing properly uh, to save our vocal cords and our and our throats
1: there there is research out there that one of our phd students did with our aging patients who had very thin vocal folds known as vocal fold atrophy and we looked at inspiratory muscular training as being um, a way to recondition the respiratory mechanism so that they wouldn't need to have Um, a surgery to augment their vocal folds. Mm. And so that was very successful. Um, Additionally, the same type of inspiratory muscular training is used to actually tighten the lower esophageal sphincter to help prevent reflux. And these are prospective randomized studies that have been done to uh, verify the efficacy of this. For the uh, people with reflux, they actually did the the pH probe down the nose for 24 hours before um, and the manometry probe to measure the tightness of the sphincter uh, before and after they completed the training and noted that it was very effective.
0: That is, I have to say, that is one of the reasons why we do the Science Never Sleeps, because not only does uh, your institute offer information or solutions for folks, they continue to uh, study and learn w- what are the best innovations to move forward the practice and to help their patients. And I think that is just an, uh, what you just said is a highlight of why uh, an academic health center like the Medical University of South Carolina is so important to the health and well-being of our citizens. We don't just offer regular clinical practice. We offer state-of-the-art based on the research of our faculty and the residents. And I think that's, that's outstanding. Um, Over your vast career, what are some of the most surprising clinical innovations that have been discovered regarding how singers protect and manage their instrument, the vocal cords?
1: One of the uh, most uh, fun and surprising uh, things that has become very much incorporated into vocal pedagogy is a technique called straw phonation. And straw phonation basically is a way for singers to vocalize on a vowel, um, but instead with the straw in their mouth, either open to the air, but often with it the other end in about an inch of water, what it happens is it prohibits them from having excessive tension in the tongue and in the neck. So it takes away these compensatory Um, uh, measures and allows them to vocalize very freely so that if they're having trouble, for example, transitioning from their chest voice up into their head voice because they end up tightening at that transition, which is very difficult. It's a very complex muscular interaction. Um, By releasing that tension, they learn how to easily ascend the scale Uh, without that tension. Um, It can help them build their range. It can help them, you know, again, with the register transitions. And also, because this technique causes a very high amplitude but very low pressure rubbing of the vocal folds together, it also massages stiffness out of the vocal folds.
0: And you're talking about a straw like a sipping straw.
1: Yeah, like a Starbucks straw. Mm, Hmm. Very simple. Yeah, but we prefer it to have a bend in it so Ah. that they they stay aligned and they get out of that forward head posture. Um, But I will say the caveat about that is that, you know, people shouldn't just go out and try it, especially if they have uh, concern about a vocal problem. The voice teachers who are using this with their students are already sure that by hearing their students and knowing their students, over time that they don't have a lesion on the vocal fold like a polyp or a nodule. Okay. If they, if they thought they were having that, then that's, um, I see plenty of uh, plenty of them. (laughs) Um, But if you think that your voice has become rough as a singer, um, then it's better to have your vocal folds looked at. Mm. prior to trying to do something like this, because the straw if you had a nodule or a polyp, uh, a, that constant contact, um, even though it's very gentle, could potentially make those lesions worse.
0: Good to know. Thank you for that caution. Dr. Halstead, it has been our pleasure to speak with you today about the great work you and MUSC are doing to mediate COVID-19 issues related to the creative arts especially as they relate to the joy of music and song. We are most grateful for your passion and ingenuity, as well as the gracious musical contributions of Mr. Rob Taylor, Ms. Conant, and the Taylor Festival Choir. And exceedingly grateful for the innovative and informative work of Drs. Weaver and Speed, co-chairs of the Performing Arts Aerosol Study Coalition. And again, we will put the links out there for those interested in learning more and seeing exactly how the aerosol study um, uh, graphically shows how um, the COVID-19 can be transmitted. And to our listeners, on behalf of the Medical University of South Carolina, In our Office of the Vice President for Research. We wish everyone a safe, joyful, peaceful, and musical end of 2020 and hope to join with you again via podcast or in person for our MUSC Science Cafe series and Science Never Sleeps. And we will leave you now with more song from the Taylor Festival Choir. Thank you all, and we'll see you in 2021.